Book One, Chapter Four, Part Two, of A Voyage Towards the South Pole and Round the World, Volume One by James Cook. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by David Cole. Chapter Four, Transactions in Dusky Bay, with an account of several interviews with the inhabitants, Part Two. I took them both down into the cabin where we were to breakfast. They sat at table with us, but would not taste any of our victuals. The chief wanted to know where we slept, and indeed to pry into every corner of the cabin, every part of which he viewed with some surprise. But it was not possible to fix his attention to any one thing a single moment. The works of art appeared to him in the same light as those of nature, and were as far removed beyond his comprehension. What seemed to strike them most was the number and strength of our decks and other parts of the ship. The chief, before he came aboard, presented me with a piece of cloth and a green talc hatchet. To Mr. Forster he also gave a piece of, of cloth, and the girl gave another to Mr. Hodges. This custom of making presents before they receive any is common with the natives of the South Sea Isles, but I never saw it practised in New Zealand before. Of all the various articles I gave my guest, hatchets and spike-nails were the most valuable in his eyes. These he would never suffer to go out of his hands after he once laid hold of them, whereas many other articles he would lay carelessly down anywhere, and at last leave them behind him. As soon as I could get quit of them, they were conducted into the gun-room where I left them, and set out with two boats to examine the head of the bay, myself in one accompanied by Mr. Forster and Mr. Hodges, and Lieutenant Cooper in the other. We proceeded up the south side, and without meeting with anything remarkable, got to the head of the bay by sunset, where we took up our lodging for the night, at the first place we could land upon for the flats hindered us from getting quite to the head. At daylight in the morning I took two men in the small boat, and with Mr. Forster went to take a view of the flat land at the head of the bay, near to where we spent the night. We landed on one side and ordered the boat to meet us on the other side, but had not been long on shore before we saw some ducks which, by their creeping through the bushes, we got a shot at and killed one. The moment we had fired, the natives, whom we had not discovered before, set up a most hideous noise in two or three places close by us. We hallooed in our turn, and at the same time retired to our boat, which was full half a mile off. The natives kept up their clamouring noise, but did not follow us. Indeed, we found afterwards that they could not, because of a branch of the river between us and them nor did we find their numbers answerable to the noise they made. As soon as we got to our boat, and found that there was a river that would admit us, I rowed in, and was soon after joined by Mr. Cooper in the other boat. With this reinforcement I proceeded up the river, shooting wild ducks, of which there were great numbers. As we went along, now and then, hearing the natives in the woods, 
At length two appeared on the banks of the river, a man and a woman, and the latter kept waving something white in her hand as a sign of friendship. Mr. Cooper being near them, I called to him to land, as I wanted to take the advantage of the tide to get up as high as possible, which did not much exceed half a mile, when I was stopped by the strength of the stream and great stones that lay in the bed of the river. On my return I found that as Mr. Cooper did not land when the natives expected him, they had retired into the woods, but two others now appeared on the opposite bank. I endeavoured to have an interview with them, but this I could not effect, for as I approached the shore they always retired farther into the woods, which were so thick as to cover them from our sight. The falling tide obliged me to retire out of the river to the place where we had spent the night. There we breakfasted, and afterwards embarked, in order to return on board. But, just as we were going, we saw two men on the opposite shore, hallooing to us, which induced me to row over to them. I landed with two others, unarmed, the two natives standing about one hundred yards from the water-side, with each a spear in his hand. When we three advanced they retired, but stood when I advanced alone. It was some little time before I could prevail upon them to lay down their spears. This at last one of them did, and met me with a grass plant in his hand, one end of which he gave me to hold, while he held the other. Standing in this manner he began a speech, not one word of which I understood, and made some long pauses, waiting, as I thought, for me to answer, for when I spoke he proceeded. As soon as this ceremony was over, which was not long, we saluted each other. He then took out his hahu, or coat, from off his own back and put it upon mine, after which peace seemed firmly established. More people joining us did not in the least alarm them, on the contrary they saluted every one as he came up. I gave to each a hatchet and a knife, having nothing else with me. Perhaps these were the most valuable things I could give them, at least they were the most useful. They wanted us to go to their habitation, telling us they would give us something to eat, and I was sorry that the tide and other circumstances would not permit me to accept of their invitation. More people were seen in the skirts of the wood, but none of them joined us. Probably these were their wives and children. When we took leave they followed us to our boat, and seeing the muskets lying across the stern, they made signs for them to be taken away, which being done they came alongside and assisted us to launch her. At this time it was necessary for us to look well after them, for they wanted to take away everything they could lay their hands upon except the muskets. These they took care not to touch, being taught, by the slaughter they had seen us make among the wild fowl, to look upon them as instruments of death. We saw no canoes or other boats with them. Two or three logs of wood tied together served the same purpose and were indeed sufficient for the navigation of the river, on the banks of which they lived. There fish and fowl were in such plenty, that they had no occasion to go far for food, and they have but few neighbours to disturb them. The whole number at this place, I believe, 
does not exceed three families. It was noon when we took leave of these two men, and proceeded down the north side of the bay, which I explored in my way, and the isles that lie in the middle. Night, however, overtook us, and obliged me to leave one arm unlooked into, and hasten to the ship, which we reached by eight o'clock. I then learned that the man and his daughter stayed on board the day before till noon, and that having understood from our people what things were left in Cascade Cove, the place where they were first seen, he sent and took them away. He and his family remained near us till to-day, when they all went off and we saw them no more, which was the more extraordinary, as he never left us empty-handed. From one or another he did not get less than nine or ten hatchets, three or four times that number of large spike-nails, besides many other articles. So far as these things may be counted riches in New Zealand, he exceeds every man there, being at this time possessed of more hatchets and axes than are in the whole country besides. In the afternoon of the twenty-first I went with a party out to the isles on seal-hunting. The surf ran so high that we could only land in one place, where we killed ten. These animals served us for three purposes. The skins we made use of for our rigging, the fat gave oil for our lamps, and the flesh we eat. Their haslets are equal to that of a hog, and the flesh of some of them eats little inferior to beefsteaks. The following day nothing worthy of notice was done. On the morning of the twenty-third, Mr. Pickersgill, Mr. Gilbert, and two others went to the Cascade Cove, in order to ascend one of the mountains, the summit of which they reached by two o'clock in the afternoon, as we could see by the fire they made. In the evening they returned on board, and reported that inland nothing was to be seen but barren mountains, with huge craggy precipices, disjoined by valleys, or rather chasms, frightful to behold. On the south-east side of Cape West, four miles out at sea, they discovered a ridge of rocks, on which the waves broke very high. I believe these rocks to be the same we saw the evening we first fell in with the land. Having five geese left out of those we brought from the Cape of Good Hope, I went with them next morning to Goose Cove, named so on this account, where I left them. I chose this place for two reasons. First, there are no inhabitants to disturb them, and secondly, here being the most food, I make no doubt that they, they will breed, and may in time spread over the whole country, and fully answer my intention in leaving them. We spent the day shooting in and about the cove, and returned aboard about ten o'clock in the evening. One of the party shot a white hern, which agreed exactly with Mr. Pennant's description, in his British zoology, of the white herns that either now are, or were formerly, in England. The twentieth was the eighth fair day we had had successively, a circumstance, I believe, very uncommon in this place, especially at this season of the year. This fair weather gave us an opportunity to complete our wood and water, to overhaul the rigging, caulk the ship, and put her in a condition for sea.
Fair weather was, however, now at an end, for it began to rain this evening, and continued without intermission till noon the next day, when we cast off the shore fasts, hove the ship out of the creek to her anchor, and steadied her with an oarsor to the shore. On the twenty-seventh hazy weather with showers of rain. In the morning I set out, accompanied by Mr. Pickersgill and the two Mr. Forsters, to explore the arm or inlet I discovered the day I returned from the head of the bay. After rowing about two leagues up it, or rather down, I found it to communicate with the sea, and to afford a better outlet for ships bound to the north than the one I came in by. After making this discovery and refreshing ourselves on broiled fish and wild fowl, we set out for the ship and got on board at eleven o'clock at night, leaving two arms we had discovered and which ran into the east unexplored. In this expedition we shot forty-four birds, sea-pies, ducks, etc., without going one foot out of our way or causing any other delay than picking them up. Having got the tents and every other article on board on the 28th, we only now waited for a wind to carry us out of the harbour, and through a new passage, the way I proposed to go to sea. Everything being removed from the shore, I set fire to the topwood, etc., in order to dry a piece of the ground we had occupied, which next morning I dug up and sowed with several sorts of garden seeds. The soil was such as did not promise success to the planter. It was, however, the best we could find. At two o'clock in the afternoon we weighed with a light breeze at southwest, and stood up the bay for the new passage. Soon after we had got through, between the east end of Indian Island and the west end of Long Island, it fell calm, which obliged us to anchor in forty-three fathom water under the north side of the latter island. In the morning of the 30th we weighed again with a light breeze at west, which, together with all our boats ahead towing, was hardly sufficient to stem the current. For, after struggling till six o'clock in the evening, and not getting more than five miles from our last anchoring place, we anchored under the north side of Long Island, not more than one hundred yards from the shore, to which we fastened a hawser. 1773, May. At daylight next morning, May 1st, we got again under sail and attempted to work to windward, having a light breeze down the bay. At first we gained ground, but at last the breeze died away, when we soon lost more than we had got, and were obliged to bear up for a cove on the north side of Long Island, where we anchored in nineteen fathom water a muddy bottom. In this cove we found two huts not long since inhabited, and near them two very large fireplaces or ovens, such as they have in the Society Isles. In this cove we were detained by calms, attended with continual rain, till the fourth in the afternoon, when, with the assistance of a small breeze at south-west, we got the length of the reach or passage leading to sea. The breeze then left us, and we anchored under the east point, before a sandy beach, in thirty fathoms water. But this anchoring place hath nothing to recommend it, like the one we came from, 
which hath everything in its favour. In the night we had some very heavy squalls of wind, attended with rain, hail and snow, and some thunder. Daylight exhibited to our view all the hills and mountains covered with snow. At two o'clock in the afternoon a light breeze sprung up at south-south-west, which, with the help of our boats, carried us down the passage to our intended anchor-place, where at eight o'clock we anchored in sixteen fathoms water, and moored with a hawser to the shore, under the first point on the starboard side as you come in from sea, from which we were covered by the point. In the morning on the sixth I sent Lieutenant Pickersgill, accompanied by the two Mr. Forsters, to explore the second arm which turns into the east, myself being confined on board by a cold. At the same time I had everything got up from between decks, the decks well cleaned and well aired with fires, a thing that ought never to be long neglected in wet, moist weather. The fair weather, which had continued all this day, was succeeded in the night by a storm from north-west, which blew in hard squalls, attended with rain, and obliged us to strike top-gallant and lower yards, and to carry out another hawser to the shore. The bad weather continued the whole day and the succeeding night, after which it fell calm with fair weather. At seven o'clock in the morning on the 8th, Mr. Pickersgill returned, together with his companions, in no very good plight, having been at the head of the arm he was sent to explore, which he judged to extend in to the eastward about eight miles. In it is a good anchoring place, wood, fresh water, wild fowl and fish. At nine o'clock I set out to explore the other inlet, or the one next the sea, and ordered Mr. Gilbert, the master, to go and examine the passage out to sea, while those on board were getting everything in readiness to depart. I proceeded up the inlet till five o'clock in the afternoon, when bad weather obliged me to return before I had seen the end of it. As this inlet lay nearly parallel with the sea coast, I was of opinion that it might communicate with Doubtful Harbour, or some other inlet to the northward. Appearances were, however, against this opinion, and the bad weather hindered me from determining the point, although a few hours would have done it. I was about ten miles up, and thought I saw the end of it. I found on the north side three coves in which, as also on the south side, between the main and the isles that lie four miles up the inlet, is good anchorage. Wood, water, and what else can be expected, such as fish and wild fowl. Of the latter we killed in this excursion three dozen. After a very hard row, against both wind and rain, we got on board about nine o'clock at night, without a dry thread on our backs. This bad weather continued no longer than till the next morning, when it became fair, and the sky cleared up. But, as we had not wind to carry us to sea, we made up two shooting parties, myself accompanied by the two Mr. Forsters and some others, went to the area I was in the day before, and the other party to the coves and isles Mr. Gilbert had discovered when he was out, and where he found many wild fowl. We had a pleasant day, and the evening brought us all on board. Myself and party met with good sport, 
but the other party found little. All the forenoon of the tenth we had strong gales from the west, attended with heavy showers of rain, and blowing in such flurries over high land as made it unsafe for us to get under sail. The afternoon was more moderate and became fair, when myself, Mr. Cooper, and some others went out in the boat to the rocks, which lie at the entrance of the bay, to kill seals. The weather was rather unfavourable for this sport, and the sea ran high, so as to make landing difficult. We, however, killed ten, but could only wait to bring away five, with which we returned on board. In the morning of the eleventh, while we were getting under sail, I sent a boat for the other five seals. At nine o'clock we weighed with a light breeze at south-east, and stood out to sea, taking up the boat in our way. It was noon before we got clear of the land, at which time we observed in forty-five degrees thirty-four minutes thirty seconds south. The entrance of the bay bore south-east by east, and breaks the isles, the outermost isles that lie at the south point of the entrance of the bay, bore south-south-east, distant three miles. The southernmost point, or that of Five Fingers Point, bore south forty-two degrees west, and the northernmost land north-north-east. In this situation we had a prodigious swell from the south-west, which broke with great violence on all the shores that were exposed to it. End of Book One Chapter Four Part Two Recording by David Cole, Medway, Massachusetts